Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association of North America's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association of North America or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Clay Nully from TSAOG Orthopedics in San Antonio. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Joshua Harris. Dr. Harris was a senior author on a paper entitled Sham Surgery Studies and Orthopedic Surgery May Be Just a Sham, a Systematic Review of Randomized Placebo-Controlled Trials. Dr. Harris is joining us from Houston Methodist Hospital. Josh, thank you for joining me tonight. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. So this is a really interesting study. So before we dive into all the nitty gritty details, can you maybe give us just kind of the impetus for the study and the general background of it and, and how you guys went about setting up the study and going about it? Yeah, thank you. Um, so the topic of this study um, is a subject that is uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, I'm, I'm 40 years old. Uh, I'm early in my career. Uh, I've been in practice at, uh, at Houston Methodist for about seven years. And my practice is primarily sports medicine, specifically hip arthroscopy. And so in my practice, I use evidence-based medicine. Uh, we teach students, residents, and fellows. And so uh, the topic of the randomized trial is a topic that we discuss in our, in our everyday practice quite frequently. And so uh, with the randomized controlled trial, the sham control or the placebo control is really kind of at the top of the evidence-based hierarchy when you want to look at an intervention and whether that's, you know, a knee arthroscopy, a shoulder arthroscopy, or, or in my practice, hip arthroscopy, it's a topic that is uh, incredibly interesting. And the original seminal placebo controlled or sham surgery controlled randomized study was actually performed here in Houston. And so um, the way that this study was actually conceived was uh, we were doing a journal club with our residents and fellows. And we talked about the Bruce Mosley knee arthroscopy study, which was performed here. And several of our uh, residents actually asked pretty insightful questions, a couple related to the genetics of the placebo response. And uh, based on the journal club that we had, I'd read a couple of texts uh, by Ian Harris, uh, some articles by Judea Pearl uh, and uh, Tepo Jarmadin, and uh, it really piqued my interest to, to study this further. And there was a lot that these randomized sham controlled trials really don't go into. And I think that for orthopedic surgery, we're always striving to get better. Our evidence needs to get better. And so um, that's really where the, the study came up. And, you know, if you look at the number of studies that we analyzed in this systematic review, there were only seven. And so uh, if you compare that to the rest of medicine, it's a pretty small number. Uh, we actually studied this when I was a fellow and published it in 2014 in arthroscopy, where we looked at essentially the percentage of publications that are randomized studies in all of orthopedic surgery. And it's only about 5%. And so it's a small proportion of what we look at in our literature, but it's the best. And so um, we want to make sure that we do a really, really good job. And so, you know, when we went through all of the different studies in this systematic review, these are primarily level one and level two evidence. So it's high quality evidence. But even within those high quality evidence studies, we still found a lot of limitations. And so that's where the impetus for the study really kind of came. And uh, we then combined my co-authors uh, are really world experts on, on this topic. And so it was a real pleasure and it was humbling to hear some of their insights as we went through uh, over a dozen different iterations of this study before it actually uh, was accepted for publication. And then we went through a couple of rounds of peer review with the journal. And then actually after the study was published, um, this was just online before it actually went print, which was actually just this month's uh, issue. Uh, it had already received uh, two letters to the editor. So 
um, I guess that's kind of great and horrible at the same time. It's generating interest. And, uh, and I'm, I'm very excited to use this study as kind of a jumping point for uh, improving the quality of our uh, orthopedic surgery and sports medicine research. That's great. I definitely think it's going to generate a lot of interest because as you stated, you know, we're all kind of searching for the highest level of, of, of information and study quality that we can see. And everybody always kind of points to, well, is this level one or is it level two? And, you know, what level is it? And, and randomized controlled trials are, are really hard to do. Again, as you pointed to, less than 5% in orthopedics. Why, why do you think it's, it's so difficult? I mean, we all know randomized controls are hard to do. There's a lot of reasons for it, funding or uh, research capability or, or, you know, amount of help that people have that are able to do it. But why do you think it's so hard to do specifically in orthopedics? Yeah, so uh, randomized studies are, are incredibly challenging. And the one thing that I always want to bring up whenever I'm discussing this systematic review, as we all know with systematic reviews, they're only as good as the studies they analyze. And so since the topic of this systematic review is looking at just the limitations, uh, I want to make sure that I really emphasize uh, how proud of the research that um, those seven studies, how those authors have done that. Because it's hard. It takes a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of people, the teams that go into putting studies like that together, I mean, it, it's really quite amazing that they can do that. And so, yeah, it's, it's really, really challenging. And when you look at things like orthopedics, the majority of orthopedics um, is primarily elective. And our patients nowadays are incredibly educated. And so trying to find patients in which you can have, you know, equipoise in a clinical discussion for informed consent is, is quite challenging. And so many patients of mine will come in and they've already read the randomized studies that exist in hip arthroscopy that compare surgery to non-surgical treatments. They come in and they already know what a labrum is or what hip impingement is. And if you look at that, um, that topic and you apply that to those analyzed in this review, you know, a lot of patients already come in and they know what a meniscus tear is. Uh, they already know what uh, uh, arthritis means. And so if you talk to them about potentially getting randomized and allocated to a non-surgical treatment, that's potentially uh, upsetting to them. And the, the challenge with that discussion is highly biased by the contextual effects of that discussion. The contextual effects are really how that informed consent researcher, whether that's the surgeon uh, or a member of the research team, how they present the topic. Uh, you can sell the surgery really well, or you can sell the non-surgical treatment really well. And, um, you know, that discussion is framed oftentimes in a healthcare setting. So you're in a hospital. Um, we're talking about interventions. Um, you know, people are aware uh, you're, you were in an operating room and you're wearing, you know, healing garments like a, a white coat. You're talking about healing instruments like a stethoscope or a scalpel. And so there's so many different contextual effects that patients are already aware of that it makes that informed consent uh, discussion, you know, quite challenging on top of the money that it takes, uh, the time that it takes. I mean, several of these studies took over five years just to even get started. And you have to wonder that if you go through this eligibility, you know, process and you enroll a small fraction, and that's what our systematic review found, only about a third of patients that were eligible for uh, inclusion um, actually even offered to be randomized or actually even got randomized. That's a big deal because then you have to wonder, since this is an elective procedure, you know, in all seven of these studies, and uh, these individuals are searching for treatments or interventions that can improve pain, you then have to account for all the different psychological, um, you know, factors that are involved, whether that's, you know, self-efficacy, resilience, catastrophizing, kinesiophobia, you know, patient activation and motivation, and all of those factors you know, unfortunately, they're just not controlled for uh, in these studies uh, because of that difficulty with the informed consent process. And so, yes, I, I completely agree with you. It's a challenging 
study design to actually perform. And when it's done really, really well, it provides significant evidence to help with policy and guidelines and kind of guide our, our clinical everyday practice. And that's the goal of these studies. But I think, unfortunately, as our, our study found, there were uh, enough limitations that I don't think we're there yet. And I think that we can get better. Yeah, absolutely. I think you made some terrific points there. Certainly that informed consent process is such a big part of everything we do. And and especially in orthopedics, as you alluded to, the sham surgery or the sham procedure is definitely probably something that is a difficult thing to get a lot of patients to go for. I mean, some of the some of the other types of options in our randomized control trials that we see, you know, it, it, the sham procedure is somewhat different than saying, okay, we're going to do a randomized control trial comparing hamstring ACLs to BTB ACLs, because at least the patient knows they're getting this, you know, an ACL surgery. And so sometimes those are maybe a little bit easier to actually employ um, and go through. So one of the interesting things, some of the details getting into the limitations in your guys' conclusions. So all of the studies that you looked at, the seven studies, as you mentioned, had a superiority design model. So do you think that's a major limitation of them? And would a randomized control trial in this type of setting with a non-inferiority design or even just an equivalence design be better? And can you kind of go through those concepts with us? Yeah, and so I think that's probably one of the biggest limitations uh, in the studies that we looked at. Um, you know, the superiority model really looks at kind of the uh, the smallest minimum number of, of subjects that you need to analyze in order to find a difference. And if you compare that superiority model design to that of equivalence or non-inferiority, you need about four times more subjects in your study uh, in order to basically guarantee or at least reduce the risk of having beta error. Just because you don't find a difference doesn't mean that a difference doesn't exist. And so that possibility of missing a difference uh, just because of the number of subjects enrolled is a big deal. And, um, you know, in the studies that we looked at, out of those seven, three of those studies were underpowered. When you don't find a difference, if they're underpowered, then the possibility of beta error, you know, is quite significant. And if you increase the number of subjects and you increase them to that of an equivalence or a non-inferior design, the likelihood of that beta error significantly drops. That's a great point. One of the other things I, I often look for regularly whenever I, I look at a read a new randomized control trial is I look at crossover rates and then whether that either supports or doesn't support the potential of the procedure being studied or a specific outcome measure that may be being studied with the trial. So in these studies that you guys looked at, there were crossover rates that range anywhere from 8 to 36%. So can you just kind of talk to that point and maybe how that influenced some of the studies design and some of the study outcomes as well? Yeah, um, on any randomized study, especially a sham surgery controlled study, crossover is incredibly important. And um, that crossover, um, whether or not that's, uh, you know, before or after unblinding of the subjects, um, the crossover is an important point because it can potentially invalidate the study altogether, just that simple point alone. Uh, the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine really uses kind of a rough guide of 20% for the cutoff of invalidation of a study's results. And so if you have crossover that exceeds that 20%, then no matter what you find, you really just, you can't trust the results. And two out of our seven studies exceeded that 20% threshold and the other ones that actually reported it. And so I think it was only five total that actually reported the crossover rate. And so, you know, two out of the five, so 40% of those studies that reported a crossover, it was an unacceptable amount of crossover. And I think that if you found out after unblinding, so let's say you've gone through, you know, short-term follow-up, which all the studies in this systematic review were short-term follow-up. So let's say you're one of those subjects and you go through one year of follow-up, your knee is still hurting, and they unblind it and tell you that um, you received the sham intervention, which was a diagnostic arthroscopy, general anesthesia, uh, you had skin incisions and a lavage, and you still had that 
same preoperative pain, then you may assume that, well, I didn't get the actual surgery itself. And so therefore, the reason I still have pain is because my meniscus tear wasn't treated. And so then you can cross over or post-randomization, if you find out that you have a skin incision that is not present, such as an open biceps tenodesis, as one of the studies in this study or in our systematic review used, if you're missing that open biceps tenodesis incision, then you can automatically just figure out which group you're in. And then if you start to have any inkling of pain, you may then automatically jump to that worst case scenario where, uh-oh, I was in the sham group and therefore my pain is because I didn't have my real pathology treated. And so crossover, I think, is an enormous issue, and um, we have to do it, you know, as great a job as possible in trying to minimize that crossover um, and really kind of protect the blinding. Looking at things like blinding indices uh, is incredibly important. Uh, not a single study in this um, systematic review reported a blinding index. And so um, I think that uh, blinding and crossover are, are really, really important and, you know, an issue that's in the systematic review that um, in and of itself, I think, is a limitation that precludes its conclusions. That makes a lot of sense. An interesting thing that you guys looked at that I hadn't really seen much of before uh, is you looked at the variation in placebo response that may be due to genetics. So it's interesting because you know there's a lot of things coming out in the literature uh, relating to coping and, and how anxiety and potentially depression and even maybe gene markers that are related to coping and anxiety and depression can influence patient response to surgery in general, but even potentially to placebo response. And so can you kind of speak to that variable and how that plays a role in some of these types of trials, including a potentially a sham, a sham study or a placebo-controlled randomized trial? Yeah, so this is an issue that um, I was completely ignorant uh, of b prior to starting this uh, systematic review. This was from um, reading off a book off of Amazon that I think I mentioned earlier called Suggestible You by Eric Vance. It was published a couple of years ago, I think in 2016. And so um, it's a really terrific book that talks about the genetics of placebo. And um, this is an issue that is not really studied really at all in orthopedic surgery or specifically sports medicine. The genetics of the placebo response uh, boil down to um, several different genes, some of which we know a lot about, some of which we know very little, and some that are, are still currently unknown. Um, probably the biggest one that's actually referred to as the placebo gene is the catechol-O-methyltransferase, the COMT, or the COMT uh, gene, which basically is an enzyme that's involved in dopamine metabolism, which really explains why what you just said is so important. Um, a lot of the clinical entities that we manage, such as anxiety or depression, or pain um, really are affected by the dopamine or serotonin metabolism pathway. Um, one of the clinical entities uh, in medicine, uh, Parkinson's disease, um, actually has shown uh, substantial positive effects with uh, placebo interventions or, or sham interventions. And so um, the power of this, you know, genetic analysis is that we haven't really even measured it. I, I mean, in orthopedic surgery, we don't even talk about it, and most people aren't even aware of it. And so in the two letters to the editor that were written already about uh, our study, that was one of their big critiques. And they said that we were, you know, very, very far away from using this. And so um, as I looked more into this and tried to find more details, and I'm still learning more about it, uh, I, I'm certainly no geneticist, but, you know, m medicine nowadays, it, the amount of medical information that we have really doubles about, I think it's every 73 days. And so genetics and personalized care and uh, customized medicine, whether that's for a pill, uh, for depression or anxiety or Parkinson, or whether it's a surgery, you know, for, you know, a meniscus tear, placebo-based customized care, I think, is in the very, very near future. And then we can use 
um, that information to, to help our patients. And, and, you know, we found that, you know, um, that catechol O-methyltransferase um, enzyme, uh, the gene for that, um, if you're homozygous MET-MET, um, you're going to have a great placebo response. If you're homozygous Val-Val, you're going to have the worst placebo response. And so if you want to set up a study, uh, a randomized study that accounts for this, you probably should um, get rid of those that are the best placebo responders. You should take those individuals where you really want to look at the effect of the intervention and only the intervention, and you try to you want to try to minimize the placebo effect. You want to try to minimize that contextual effect. You want to minimize the you know the natural history of the condition, the regression to the mean, all of those factors that are uh, basically secondary to what you're trying to find, which is just the intervention and the intervention alone. And so, if you could take individuals and so essentially design your study to have inclusion criteria where you are homozygous, val val for that you know the worst possible placebo response, you want to take those individuals and study them. Um, the crazy thing with that is that the prevalence of the net net, which is the good placebo response. That's about a quarter of our population. It's estimated that the general population, a quarter of individuals, are highly likely to be placebo responders. And so I think we have to account for this. And it's not just that COMT gene. It's also um, OPRM1, which is the mu opioid receptor, a variety of different cannabinoid genes, uh, tryptophan genes. And all of these really kind of go back to dopamine and serotonin metabolism. And so that's how we interpret pain. Uh, it's, it's through that pathway. And I think that we have to control for that and look at that. Uh, when we're designing sham surgery controlled randomized trials. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's that was a really great synopsis. Thanks for that. I think that's going to be a an interesting area of study uh, as we go forward. You know, really looking at just like you alluded to these specific genetic markers and specific genes and how patients respond potentially based on based on at least to some degree or some percentage of pain and things like that and coping based on their genetic markers and and the genes that you mentioned. Um, one last question um, before we start to kind of wrap things up. So one of the I think one of the we, we mentioned at the beginning one of the big issues with doing a really well done, randomized, even placebo controlled trial, a lot of times can be funding. And and I think all the studies that you guys did looked at in the systematic review had some source of government funding. And there's some studies that'll get industry funding. And a lot of times people immediately discredit them because they, they you know, they're an industry, industry funded study, but, it, but it's the reality of it is it's hard to do big, long-term, well-done studies like this without some form of funding, whether it be government funding or industry funding or some combination. So do you think that's a big stopgap, you know, for why we can't do a lot of these studies as well? And if so, how do we get over that hump? Or is it is it even possible to do it without something like that? Yeah, so that, that's a terrific point because every study like this requires a large amount of money and that money has to come from somewhere. The researchers can't provide it themselves. And so therefore, you know, whether that's your, your federal government, whether it's um, industry, whether it's your hospital, uh, it has to come from somewhere. But depending on where it comes, comes from, it certainly does present, you know, the possibility of bias. And uh, with large studies like this, with large amounts of money, there's a lot riding on the outcome. And when you are, are federally funding a, an investigation, and the results are favorable for reducing healthcare expenditures secondary to an expensive intervention, which could be surgery, you have to take that as a potential bias. Um, it's not a guarantee. That's why you have to take the science uh, for itself and try to, as hard as you can, eliminate that thought from your mind of the potential of a financial bias influencing the outcome. 
even the study that was published in the United States um, and in the United States with our healthcare system, the study was actually performed at, at the VA. And, um, and that's a source of funding that's different from our private insurance model. And so when we look at uh, the issue of funding, you absolutely have to account for it. You obviously consider the merits of the study design, the conduct, the reporting, and you look at the science alone. Uh, but you always have to have in the back of your mind that the possible funding could influence the study's outcome. It could also be a publication bias. If the study didn't meet what your uh, anticipated outcome was, it may never have seen the light of day and actually gotten published. And so um, this is where basically having a database uh, online that actually look or a registry for uh, all of our randomized trials, that can uh, be a repository for you know, where we uh, look to see if any studies are being done, but then ultimately not published. Um, I think that's one thing that uh, we could always consider. Absolutely. Josh, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Dr. Harris's uh, study, Sham Surgery Studies in Orthopedic Surgery May Be Just a Sham, a systematic review of randomized placebo-controlled trials can be found in the October 2020 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal or online at arthroscopyjournal.org. That concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please remember to give us a five-star review and please join us next time. Mm-hmm.